For this evening's meditation, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter. The Gospel of John uh, gives us the most detailed account from all four Gospels of the post-resurrection ministry that Jesus undertook. All of the Gospels give us some level of detail, but the Gospel according to John gives us two full chapters of detail of the things that Jesus did after he was resurrected. And I'd like to begin our reading at verse 19. So that's the Gospel of John, chapter 20, beginning at verse 19. And a week and a half ago when we had our Easter Sunday morning service, Brother Ben read a few verses starting at chapter 19, where he focused on uh, the theme was around uh, not being fearful and looking at the meaning of the scars that Jesus had and what they mean, what they speak, the message they speak to us uh, today. And I'd like to continue on from that scripture and uh, look at what Jesus did over the course of those eight days following his resurrection. So John chapter 20, beginning at verse 19. And notice the theme as Jesus ministers to his disciples to bring them from a place of doubt to a place of bold faith. Then the same day at evening, this is now the Sunday evening of the resurrection, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst <clears throat> In the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had, when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you as my Father hath sent me. Even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see his in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe." And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing." And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that hath not seen and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his 
name. I've read up until the end of the chapter to verse 31. Jesus appeared multiple times to his disciples were recorded. Here we have two of them, two of the occasions that he appeared in uh, the scripture at the, <clears throat> the last several verses we read together leave open the possibility of many other times that he visited them. And we do have some uh, additional insight where the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 we read in verse verse 5 as he's talking about Jesus and that he, that is Jesus, was seen of Cephas, that is Peter, then of the twelve disciples. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, in other words, at the same time, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James and all of the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. And so here we have a short synopsis, a short summary of the times that Jesus appeared to his disciples, and it seems that it wasn't just in ones and twos, but also in dozens and even up to the point of 500 brethren at the same time, simultaneously, of whom at the time the Apostle Paul wrote the letter were still alive. And so those that were doubting whether Jesus was resurrected could speak to any one of them. And some who were doubting that it was just a vision or some hallucination that took place, never that that can't happen when you have so many hundreds of people in one location. And so why did Jesus not just ascend to heaven and his plan the plan of salvation was complete? He died and paid the penalty of sin. He was resurrected, demonstrate power over death, and now he could Return back to the Father. We don't have a clear one-line statement to know exactly why he was stayed for uh, many days after he was resurrected, appearing in, in similar manner as we read together. But we do see that there was ministry that he needed to do. Because he needed to move his disciples, not just the 12 that we read of here, or the 11 that we read of here, from a place of fear and doubt and um, uncertainty to a place of certainty, to a place of boldness, so that they could continue the ministry that he started. And he recognized that them being humans, this would not just come in a few minute uh, time with them, that this would take some time for them to process. And so then appeared multiple times to them. We see in, in uh, verse 26, a common theme, as he greeted them, peace be unto you. And of course, this reinforces his desire for us to experience his peace and and not give in to anxiety or uncertainty or fear. We see as the scriptures pick up where not all the disciples were together. Most of them were together when they saw the Lord. And they passed on those joyful tidings to Thomas, who the scripture says in verse 24 that he was one of the 12 disciples. And not surprising that Thomas had a hard time accepting that. But it wasn't just Thomas that had a hard time accepting this. 
Sometimes we unfairly call him Doubting Thomas, when in fact, it really we really should be using the term Doubting Disciples. Because if we look in Luke's Gospel, the, the 24th chapter, we read that all of them experienced that doubt to a, to a strong degree. We see where the women went to the sepulcher, to the tomb, to anoint the body of Jesus after the Sabbath. And they saw the angel there and, and heard the great tide, the glad tidings, the wonderful news that he had risen. And it says in verse 9, And they returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven, and to all the rest. We don't know who who was part of that group and to all the rest. There was more than just the 11 disciples there. And then in verse 10 it says, who was bringing those glad tidings? It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and other women that were with them. So at least five women, probably more, which told these things unto the apostles. And verse 11, and their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. So in a sense, all the disciples and the others that were with them were all in this state of disbelief and doubt. And it wasn't until they made the experience themselves personally with the risen Lord did they begin to move from a place of doubt to a place of belief a place of boldness that we see then um, come in the, the, the Acts of the Apostles as this faith began growing in their hearts. I suppose that if we were that group, we would have probably reacted in a very similar way. And in this case, Thomas expressed his view quite emphatically Unless I put my finger into the print, into the wound that is in the hand, or thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now think of the, the, the how strong that statement is. To see someone who in, the, in that sense would have been wounded to come and stick their finger into the wound, or even more, in a sense, grotesque to, to stick your hand into the side, but... Perhaps that was a statement, uh, in, in a sense, reflecting where he was in his personal journey of faith at that time. Really trying to put the pieces together. See, Thomas, being one of the uh, 12 disciples, was with Jesus throughout the years of his ministry. He was there when Jesus healed the leper. He was there when he did the miracle of the, the loaves of the bread and the fish. He was there when he saw Jesus raise the dead to life. And so it probably wasn't hard for him to believe that those miracles were possible because they had all witnessed them. But never before had somebody raised themselves from the dead. And this was just too hard to comprehend, and not surprisingly so. That had never happened before. And so it isn't necessarily a unnatural or uh, um, surprising 
expectation from Thomas, see, having experienced all these other things personally, to also want to personally experience the presence of the resurrected Lord. I'm not sure if the expressions here that he said that they were so strong, whether it was because he was really doubting Jesus as Lord, that's possible, or perhaps it was really doubting the disciples themselves, whether what they saw they were correctly interpreting, because this wasn't the first time. This would not have been the first time the disciples had been wrong. If we look throughout Jesus' ministry, many times they misunderstood the words of Jesus or the actions or the interpretation of the events that were going around uh, on around about them. If you think of the time where Nathaniel asked, Lord, <clears throat> show us the Father. And Jesus had to correct him to say, those that have seen me have seen the Father. Or how about James and John when they came to him and, and, and had a misunderstanding of what leadership was and said that they want to rule with him on the right hand and on the left hand. And Jesus had to teach them all a lesson of what his view, God's view of leadership really was. That is of servant leader leadership. Or about the time when the disciples were, and Jesus, disciples and Jesus together, were rejected by the Samaritans as he was going to travel towards Jerusalem, and they rejected him, and the disciples were angry and asked Jesus, can we call down fire from heaven to consume these people just like Elijah, <clears throat> Elisha rather did? And Jesus had to correct them because, again, they were wrong. And so, in a sense, it's not perhaps surprising that Thomas may have second-guessed the disciples' perspective on what they had seen here because it would not have been the first time that that would have taken place. And so we see, it says in verse 26, And after eight days again, his disciples were within. And the Apostle John specifically records again that the doors were shut. And then Jesus appeared. Probably because he wanted to make the point that Jesus in his resurrected body was not constrained by the physical barriers that were presented by the closed doors. But I think it was deeper than just the physical aspect of that, seeing Jesus in his new body, in a sense giving us hope for when we will receive our new body, when we also experience the resurrection. But I think there was a deeper meaning to come across this. As you, as you think of the just the aspect of a door, a door in a building, if we lock ourselves in, it can't keep out things like misery or sickness or depression or even death itself. But it also can't keep out hope or new life in Christ or, in this case, Jesus himself. Jesus taught that I am the door. And him being the door, in a sense, is the, he has the ability to open and close the door. And no physical door will prevent him from entering. 
but also not just the physical doors, but other barriers that we can put up in our lives will not keep Jesus out. Even the barrier of doubt. Because as Jesus appears there in the room, the first thing that's recorded in verse 27 is he approaches Thomas and says, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. And why is he saying this? He says, And be not faithless, but believing. That's his purpose. And that's his purpose. That's a nice way to sum up his entire ministry is to move people from a place of ignorance, a place of faithless, being faithless to a place of belief. And it was no different for the ministry here to all of the disciples and in particular to Thomas at this point in time. Now, when Thomas expressed his doubt back in uh, verse 25, Jesus was not there at that conversation. And yet Jesus knew about that conversation. Was it because he was present in the sense that he's uh, um, omniscient, omnipresent, or omnipresent, that he's everywhere all the time? I expect that would be the case. Or is it maybe his omniscience? In other words, that he knows everything. And when he appeared there, he could see into Thomas's mind or he could, uh, um, in that sense, recall the conversation that had taken place those days earlier. I'm sure both are true. In a sense, Jesus met Thomas where he needed to be met. Notice that Thomas doesn't follow through with his request. He doesn't go and say, well, he's invited me. I've wanted to do this. I'm now going to go and stick my finger into his wound and into his side. He doesn't do it because he changes his criteria for belief. And that isn't really surprising because he's overwhelmed with the presence of the Lord. I've made that experience personally where I've had some doubts or fears, especially as I struggled to come to faith in the first place, trying to piece it all together of how all of the various pieces in the puzzle fit together. And I have an entire set of criteria that needs to be answered before I can come to a saving faith. And yet, when the Lord met me on a Sunday morning, in the middle of a message, those doubts and fears evaporated. That criteria wasn't completely met. And yet, God empowered me to a saving faith. And the same has happened to others that I have spoken to, either that I've personally been able to share the gospel with or those that have been seeking and struggling with a particular aspect of the gospel or many aspects of the gospel because it is complex and it isn't all clear. And as they struggle with it and have many, many questions, some of which we do have the answers for, or the scripture has the answers for, or history has the answers for, or logic, these things, but not everything. And some of those unanswerable questions loom 
as a barrier to saving faith. But that doesn't limit the power of Jesus. And this is what we see here with the account that even though Thomas had that criteria, it was no longer necessary for him to follow through with that criteria to understand that Jesus is Lord or to understand that um, the greater purposes of the plan of salvation. Because we see that in his response. It's important for us to learn from Thomas to be willing to change our criteria as well. It's not always um, the way we struggle with perhaps aspects of our faith or the direction that we believe God is leading us in that we may set a certain set of criteria in order to be able to move forward God doesn't necessarily address each one of them or in the sequence or order that we expect. Sometimes he does. We do have scriptural evidence for those in, in the sense of you know putting a fleece out and the Lord answering it in the exact same way of the expectation. But I think more often than not, we would find that God provides direction in a way that is unique and may not always match our criteria, or our expectation. And we need to be able to adjust that criteria so that it doesn't become, continue to be a barrier for us to move to greater levels of faith. Jesus gives the purpose where he says, be not faithless, but believing. That applies to those, of course, that are entirely without belief. In a sense that um, it's not that most people that are familiar with the scripture would be without any belief, but without the level of belief that moves them to a saving faith. But it's also applicable to those that are his disciples. For us to be able to move from a place of doubt and despair to a place of boldness, to a place of certainty, to a place of being able to be an overcomer for whatever the difficulty that you may find yourself in at the time when there's a struggle with faith. I don't believe that it's wrong to ask for specific direction, to ask in the sense we look at Thomas being so bold into what he said and what he asked. Uh, Perhaps the specifics we may find unusual, And certainly it's uh, uh, probably because it was an unusual circumstance. But we read in Hebrews, the fourth chapter, 
where we are exhorted. In chapter 4, verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That is an exhortation. It's an invitation that allows us to be bold in coming before the throne of grace in our time of need to receive the grace and help even as the disciples received grace and help. We see that this experience was sufficient to move him, to move Thomas, to a greater level of faith. Because we see his response in verse 20, verse 28, where he responded and responds to Jesus with five very important words. He says, my Lord and my God. This was a response that illustrated two solid foundations. When he expressed, my Lord, first it was an expression that was personal. It wasn't the Lord or you are Lord, it's my Lord. It's, an, it's, it's a personal expression that indicates that he not only believes in the Lordship of Jesus Christ, but also <clears throat> is making that personal. That he is submitting himself to the Lordship of Christ. That has significant implications. When we submit, or when one submits himself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, it means that we are no longer on the throne of our hearts. We are no longer in charge. We answer to a higher authority. We're all accustomed to being under the authority of someone else. It began when in our own families as we were young children to be under the authority of our parents. And as we gained independence and became, um, perhaps moved away, moved out of our parents' home, either because we got married or we uh, got our own place to live in and are no longer under the direct authority of our parents. We're under the authority of others. We're under the authority of the law of the land. We're under the authority of our, uh, uh, our uh, superiors at work. We're under the authority of Perhaps we're in higher education under the authority of the professor or the teacher or the institution that we're attending. Many examples of the different authorities that we are constantly subjected to throughout our entire lives. 
But this subjection, expressing our subjection under the authority of Christ, is something that is voluntary. This is not something that we are forced to here in this life. But Jesus extends an invitation that to be under his authority. We do know that in the end of time, when time is no more, that every knee will bow and it will no longer be a voluntary request. It will be a requirement. But here it's voluntary. It's done through an invitation, a personal invitation that is extended through the word of God, through the scripture that, that, that describes itself as a living word, as something that is alive. It's not just something that is just a good concept on a page written so long ago, but is a living invitation for each one that hears the gospel to make that personal. And that's what Thomas is doing. He's making it personal. He's saying, my Lord. In a sense, he's saying, I will trust you and follow you. I believe in you. You're my foundation. I can depend on you. You are my guide. All of these things are wrapped up in that short two-word statement. My Lord. And then he goes on to say, and my God. There's also lots of of meaning wrapped up into those three additional words. It's not just my Lord that he's being, he's subjecting himself to the Lordship of Christ for the rest of his life here on this earth, but he's also recognizing that the Lord is God. He's recognizing his eternal authority, not just the temporal authority in this life, but also the eternal authority that will stretch on forever and ever. And is an assent, is a verbal expression that Jesus is God. The Apostle John, in the first chapter, summarizes it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it goes on to describe who the Word is. That was Word was the incarnation of Jesus. And so, the expression that Thomas is stating here with these simple Words, and my God wraps that all up in those three words. He will be Lord of his life here on earth and will be God for all eternity. This is the desire that Jesus would have for each one of us. That we would not just at one point in our life be able to express those five profound words, but to be able to continually express them through 
our life. When things are going well, it's quite easy to express those words of belief. But when there are difficulties, it's a whole different matter to be able to express those same words and still mean them to the same degree. And yet, he has empowered us to be able to do that very thing. To continue to subject our lives to his authority and still believe that he is God of eternity. Then we read in verse 29 of the response that Jesus gave to Thomas. It says, Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. This message was not specific to Thomas. Though it was spoken verbally to Thomas, it applied to all of the disciples because they all fell into that same scenario. They were all struggling with belief. They were all struggling with wondering what's next. And it wasn't until Jesus appeared to them that they were able to move beyond their doubt to a bold faith, a bold belief in the plan of salvation and God's eternal purposes. And so, what then is Jesus, what does he really mean then when he says in verse 29, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed, but then gives an extra blessing when he says, blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus is not saying is not asking for blind faith. And what I mean by that is faith that has no foundation. If that were true, we wouldn't have the scriptures here for us. We wouldn't have the experiences that we make as a scripture, as, as, as those of us that are believers have made, that truly the scripture is alive and that speaks to our hearts and is God's message to us. That serves as the foundation What Jesus, I believe, is expressing here is that it is not necessary for us to come to a saving faith, to come to a place of boldness. It's not a requirement for us to see him physically. And we've seen that in the last 2,000 years. There have been tremendous acts of faith People that have not made this experience that we read about here, that came after, that gave their lives, were martyred for the gospel, and did extraordinary things without ever seeing the risen Lord in bodily form. And Jesus said there's an extra blessing there because it takes a measure of faith to believe in the resurrection the physical, bodily resurrection of the Lord. Takes a a measure of faith to believe in the whole plan of salvation without hearing it directly from the Lord himself. And Jesus calls those that are able, those that are willing to believe, based on the foundation of the scripture, and that is really key, because there are many splinter groups, there are many... Uh, 
what I'll call a strong term, heretics, those that perhaps started on the right path and have then left the sound teaching of the scripture, or those that never started on the right path and were always on some other gospel. I believe the scripture use a different gospel that is not based on this foundation. And so it is absolutely critical that our faith is based not on the teaching of men, not on some good persuasive sermons, but upon the foundation of the scripture. And that whatever we experience, whatever direction we're seeking, must always be subject to the scripture. Because the devil is a deceiver. He, de- he desires to pull us off the right path and will use things like a just a belief. Just believe. I feel this way. I feel this is the right way. And if that's not subjected to the scripture, we can feel all kinds of wrong things. And the enemy will make sure that the experiences that we make, we will, where we will have certain things that we feel that feel right, but are certainly wrong. And we're thankful that we have the certainty of the scripture as our foundation that allows us as, as, um, We read in verse 31, it says, But these are written, no, sorry, verse 30, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, the ones that are written, are there that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and and that believing ye might have life through his name. That is a great summary of what God's desire is for every single one of us, is to be able to move us from a place of doubt and despair, a place of fear and um, uncertainty, to a place of not just saving faith, but a bold faith, one that is placed on the foundation of the Word of God, the teachings of the apostles, that allows us to be an overcomer. And when Thomas expressed those five profound words of faith, my Lord and my God, the aspect of, or the meaning of the my Lord statement was not just a uh, acknowledgement that he is Lord of our lives, but also that when he is Lord of our lives, that he promises to be with us, to never leave us or forsake us. Another way to say that is that Jesus will walk with us on life's journey. And after the message, we're going to hear a song that was sing, sung, the adult choir at Eastern Camp in 2017, Walk With Me, Jesus. 
And it's a, it's a prayer that as the choir sings and we listen to that, that I'd like you to contemplate on the words as they're being sung and express them as your own. That you would express as Thomas did, my Lord and my God. And by expressing that, that you can then pray that prayer to walk with me, Jesus, on life's pilgrim journey. And for those of you that are on the phone, the song, you won't hear the song. You'll hear a few minutes of silence. And then we'll have the uh, closing, some closing thoughts and a closing prayer as well. And with this, we conclude the message. Amen.